You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Few things are certain in life, but you can always count on the number of planets in our solar system. There were precisely nine, but then that number became eight, and today there may be hundreds. The expansion of our solar system, arguments over dwarf planet Pluto, and why you might be living on dwarf planet Earth. It's Big Picture Science. In middle school, you memorize the planets of the solar system in order of their distance from the sun. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Yes, Jimmy, nine planets, you get an A. Then a few years back, the list changed. The planets are Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. No, Jimmy, I see you did not read the International Astronomical Union's resolution vote on Pluto. I know, Miss Wallahopper. It's eight planets plus the dwarf planet Pluto. Well, a gold star for Sally. What? What do you mean Pluto's not a planet anymore? (laughs) Yes, in 2006, a professional organization of astronomers, the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, redefined the planet that has the same moniker as a Disney dog, calling it a dwarf planet. The public was dismayed. Pluto fans cried out against the new demotion. Some people, well, some people felt they might never recover. Nothing made sense after Pluto lost its planet status. It's okay, Uncle Jimmy. I could never hold down a job. Uh, I know. I never had faith in love after that. I was married three times, you know. Hey, Mom. Uncle Jimmy's telling the planet story again. Uh, try to stand up, Uncle Jimmy. I am standing up, Joaquin. Standing up for Pluto. No, I mean actually... It all started when Miss Wallahopper said that Pluto wasn't a planet, and she gave a gold star to Sally. Miss Wallahopper broke my heart, and so did the IAU. Well, it was kind of a long time ago But the planets, the planets, Joaquin, there were always nine. That was certain. What can I count on now? Well, maybe not much. I'd like to reassure you that all is stable again in our solar system, but there's another bombshell. Dropped not by astronomers this time, but by planetary scientists. Our solar system isn't home to eight planets and one dwarf planet. It's home to hundreds upon hundreds of planets. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, where they've been and where they're going. And in this hour, why our solar system family has been contracting and expanding like an accordion. The very definition of planet is so in dispute that today's planet might be tomorrow's icy body, and even our own planet's status may not be secure. Welcome to dwarf planet Earth. And the orbits of planets? They're not fixed either. Well, looks like we've had a sudden change in planets. When the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, reclassified the planet Pluto as dwarf planet Pluto, well, the public went berserk. T-shirts screamed in protest. Bring back Pluto. Pluto is still a planet in my book. Pluto, revolve in peace. It's okay, Pluto. I'm not a planet either. And simply, Pluto, 
1930 to 2006. 1930 being the year that Pluto was discovered. Okay, so the public took this name change hard. But things may not be so bad, Pluto fans. Hang on. When astronomers met for the IAU conference in 2006, they realized they didn't know what a planet was. Technically, there wasn't even a scientific definition before this meeting. The word planet comes from the Greek term for wanderer. And for the Greeks, that also included the moon and the sun. But once we understood that the planets went around the sun, we shortened the list to those objects you learned about in school. Until the 2006 IAU vote. And that's when astronomers came up with a cheat sheet for recognizing a planet. And one of the criteria, besides orbiting the sun, was that the object must have cleared other objects from its orbital path. That means it has either collided with them or tossed them away with a gravitational slingshot. Jupiter is great at doing this. According to astronomers, Pluto isn't. And so it became a dwarf planet. The problem is that Pluto's orbital neighborhood is the Kuiper Belt. It's a region of the solar system beyond the orbit of Neptune. It's filled with lots of small objects, maybe even billions of them. So it's a busy place, which is why there's this debate. How do we know that Pluto hasn't cleared away the objects around it? The Kuiper Belt is congested. We've never studied it up close. Until now, or until 2015. My name is Alan Stern and I am the principal investigator of New Horizons. Alan Stern is a planetary scientist, not an astronomer, a fact that is relevant, as you'll hear, Pluto fans. He heads up the New Horizons mission, the first to explore the Pluto system. Alan, New Horizons is on its way to Pluto, and at this moment, at least, Pluto is still a dwarf planet, right? You know, I coined that term in 1991, and just like the sun is a dwarf star, Pluto is a dwarf planet, and it always will be. You don't think that'll change again? Well... Uh, I have a difference, and I think most planetary scientists think that the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, really blundered. It's not surprising, since the IAU is made up of astronomers who don't practice planetary science, that they would blunder in attempting to make it a planet definition. But, uh, you know, for most planetary scientists, I think you would find them calling Pluto a planet all the time because dwarf planets are planets. You said in talks that of all the missions that you've been involved in, and there have been many, New Horizons is the most exciting. And why is that? <laughs> it's true. New Horizons is the best space mission I've ever been involved in because it's a return to raw reconnaissance. We're the fastest spacecraft to ever launched, going farther than any mission ever has uh, from the Earth to reach its primary target, to the very frontier of our solar system, to explore not just a new planet and its satellites, Pluto, but a new kind of planet. This is the first mission to the ice dwarfs of the Kuiper Belt. And what could be more exciting? You know, in the previous generation, the leaders of planetary science in the 60s and 70s and 80s were first to Venus, first to Mars, first to Mercury, first to the giant planets. In this generation, it's very rare to be a part of first-time exploration like this. That's what New Horizons is all about. It's really something like a mission plucked out of the 1960s or 70s in terms of its exploration potential, but done with 21st century technology. What could be better than that? So it sounds as though even if Pluto received demotion from planet to dwarf planet, there are still many reasons why we want to go there. Now, well, I have, to, I have to just put in my two cents. I have to tell you, we don't consider it to be a demotion, to be a dwarf planet. It's a description. It's not an insult. It's not an insult that the sun is a dwarf star. That doesn't take anything away from our star. Turns out most of the planets in our solar system are dwarf planets. There are probably hundreds of dwarf planets in the deep outer solar system. It's really the Earth and the other terrestrial planets and the giant planets that are the misfits now. Coming back to Pluto for a moment, so we don't need to convince you that it's interesting. Now, it's not a total black box, though, right? We know something about the geology or the composition of Pluto. We know a little. We know just a little. We had a press conference uh, recently at NASA headquarters when we crossed the orbit of Neptune outbound for Pluto. I said there, and it's true, that we could write down all the things that we know about the Pluto system. And it probably wouldn't take more than one sheet of paper. Say some of those things. I mean, we know, for example, it has some snow. Yeah. So, so we know Pluto's size. We know that it has at least five satellites, small ones and big ones. We know its orbit very well. We know its color. We know something about its surface composition. There are at least three different kinds of snow on the surface. We know it has an atmosphere. 
we know the surface has uh, polar caps and very bright and dark markings. Uh, not very much else, really. Now, it it's also has um, carbon monoxide, right, which I understand is the building blocks or some of the building blocks of comets? Correct. Pluto's surface has nitrogen ice on it, carbon monoxide, and methane. And uh, the CO, the carbon monoxide, is prevalent in comets. That's because Pluto is built up from smaller building blocks like the comets. So you would expect what's in their interiors to be on Pluto's surface and in, in its interior. Given that, to what degree will we learn something about not just Pluto, the planet, but also the the formation of the Earth of the early solar system? I mean, will visiting Pluto tell us something about the building blocks of the other objects in the solar system? Well, we sure hope so, and that's why the National Academy of Sciences ranked this mission number one for funding, because it has so much to teach us about a whole new class of planet and about the origin of our solar system. And what are some of the big questions that it might answer about the formation of the solar system? Like, what sort of things are you... Well, one thing that we know is now that we did not know, even as recently as the 90s, is the solar system is very good at making planets, much better than we thought. There are probably more like 900 planets than nine. And most of those, almost all of them, are small, like Pluto. And only the rare ones grew to be much larger. We expect the Pluto system to teach us a great deal about the most prevalent class of planet in the solar system, the dwarfs. Well, Ellen, I wonder if you could say more about that, because we grew up memorizing the planets, and there were nine of them, and then there were eight and a dwarf planet, and now you're saying there are more than 900 planets. Where are they? They're almost certainly in the depths of the, the scatter belt, the scattered part of the Kuiper belt, and in the Oort cloud. All the comets and all the other things that are there came from the giant planet region. And we know that there were a significant number of planets orbiting in that region early on, and they were ejected, just like Voyager was ejected out of the solar system by, the, by Jupiter and the other giant planets. That same process took place naturally and cleaned up the middle zone of the solar system where the giant planets are now. And when you simulate that in a computer, what you find is about 90% of everything gets ejected completely out of the solar system into interstellar space. Somewhere around 10% or less gets trapped in these very distant orbits and form the Oort cloud. And everything goes there in equal proportion, whether it's the size of a mountain or the size of Montana or the size of Mars. The Oort cloud is outside of our solar system? No, the Oort cloud is attached to our solar system, but much farther... Than the Kuiper uh, Belt? Than the Kuiper Belt. So there's an area within our solar system, the Oort cloud, but also the Kuiper Belt, um, that is filled with icy bodies and dwarf planets and so forth. And this is beyond mm-hmm. Neptune. And this is a busy place. It is. Or places. These are two places. That's right. So you're saying that there are planets there? Uh, planets or dwarf planets? Both. Of course, dwarf planets are planets, but there are larger planets. In time, we will gain the technology to be able to make a census of the Oort cloud. And when we do, I think it's broadly expected that we will find a large number of small and a small number of large planets. So when you're asked the question now, how many planets our solar system has, how do you respond? I respond by saying about 900, maybe more. That's going to make elementary school memorization tough. No, I think that's a 20th century view. I wouldn't think of it that way. No one in elementary school is required to memorize all the rivers of the earth, only to know the seven largest and to know that there are lots more. Maybe you need to know the river near your house, but you don't memorize the names of all the rivers or all the mountains. We don't try to memorize the names of all the stars. The only reason we used to memorize the names of the planets is because our technology limited our ability to only knowing that there were a handful of them, so they were special. It's a quaint, old 20th century notion that school children should know the names of all the planets. So it sounds like, I'll, I'll speak for myself, that I think of Pluto as an outlier. So you have these four rocky planets, you have these four gas planets, and then you have Pluto. And it raises a question of why you, Pluto, how did Pluto form? But it sounds like what you're saying is Pluto is actually, it's the other planets that are the outliers. And, yes. and Pluto, the dwarf planet Pluto, is, is actually a common solar body formation. Very much so. We expect that the most common type of planet in the galaxy is likely to be Pluto-like, in that it's a small dwarf planet. We are living on the weird place 
we're living on an unusually large planet, Earth, and we're adjusting to that fact in the public. People are just beginning to get that at the very end of the 20th century, in the 1990s, the Kuiper Belt was discovered. It changed everything. It's the largest structure in our planetary system. It contains most of the planets that we know about today. And it's taught us that the types of planets that we thought were rare are actually routine. And the, the ones that we thought were the norm are actually the real misfits. Well, finally then, is there anything that you might discover about Pluto that would convince astronomers to change its uh, classification back to planet? Oh, I don't care what the astronomers think. They don't practice our field. They're not experts in planetary science. You know, it's like asking uh, the opinion of a podiatrist, something uh, that only a brain surgeon would know. If you go to planetary science meetings and you you sit in on the Pluto sessions, or for that matter, sessions on uh, other planets, you'll see planetary scientists referring to dwarf planets as planets every single day. And if planetary scientists attempted to make classifications of galaxies and quasars, we'd probably get it wrong, too. So when New Horizons arrives at Pluto and we announce that it has arrived at the planet Pluto or it's arrived at the dwarf planet Pluto, both statements are correct. Yes, because one is just an adjectival descriptor. I don't understand this distinction you're making. I'm not. I'm getting you to clarify it for the public, and you just did. I said both statements are correct, and the answer is yes, both statements are correct. Right. I'm sorry. I'm getting exercised. I apologize. It's it's late in my day. No, it's okay. I really have to deal with this so much. Alan Stern, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for uh, being interested. Alan Stern is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute and is the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission. Well, he's clearly not neutral on the subject of nomenclature. Yes, he feels strongly that the term dwarf planet is an artificial distinction, and yet there is an important distinction, he feels, between astronomers and planetary scientists. I think that the deal is that, from the public's point of view, you always thought you knew what a planet is, and now they tell you you don't know what a planet is. It's like, I always thought I knew what a brontosaurus was, and now it turns out to be a a patasaurus. Coming up, the overachieving planets, super-Earth, and a NASA mission to explore other solar bodies that came this close to being planets themselves. Looks like it's a sudden change in planets on Big Picture Science. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The whole controversy of dwarf planets was spurred by finding previously unknown objects, big objects, beyond the orbit of Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. But we've also found another kind of planet that we didn't previously know about, and this time around other stars, that is to say, stars outside our solar system. And we don't have one of these kinds at home. They're called super-Earths, and this planetary scientist is intrigued. People are attracted to the question of super-Earths because they think that these objects may be like the Earth. I actually think they're not like the Earth. But this is just part of a growing story of trying to figure out all of the different kinds of planets that can exist in the universe. David Stevenson is a professor of planetary science at the California Institute of Technology. Super-Earths, he says, could be as common in the universe as flies at a picnic. Big flies, that is. NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, which has found thousands of planets, is racking up a lot of super-Earths. Dave, you uh, study the properties of super-Earths. Now, that sounds like a planet that's a little bit better than this one, but that's not really what it's about. What's a super-Earth? A super-Earth is a planet that is bigger than the Earth, uh, more massive. It might be as much as twice the radius of the Earth. So super-Earths, then, are planets that are a little bit bigger than the Earth, but they're not as big as Jupiter, for example, or are they as big as Neptune and uh, Uranus? Uh, That's right. Okay, so we don't have an example of a planet like this in our own solar system. 
That's right. But apparently there are lots of them out there. One of the most exciting things in science in the last decade is the discovery of a huge number of planets around other stars. And we're beginning to find that some of them might be these things that we call super-Earths because they're larger than the Earth, but not hugely larger than the Earth. Now, when I think of a super-Earth on the basis of the little that I've uh, seen about them, I, I, I picture a kind of a water world, with or without Kevin Costner, you know, just this big globe with, with water everywhere and maybe no land anywhere. Is that what I would find on a super-Earth? You might, but actually I think that in many cases they're hot. They're not particularly nice places, actually. They're not places you'd like to buy real estate or live. They are so hot in some cases that the water that's there will be steam. It will be mixed up with the atmosphere, and the inside of the planet, too, will be mixed up. It'll be different from Earth. What would I see if I could somehow parachute down, assuming it has an atmosphere, so I, so I could parachute down, down into, uh, you know, onto, I don't know, the ocean surface of a, of a super-Earth? Uh, you might not be able to see very far. It's kind of uh, dense and hot and nasty. Who knows? Uh, but one possibility is that as you go down, you will never encounter a surface. In that sense, it could be like Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus or Neptune, all of which do not have a surface in the way that Earth has a surface. Clouds, yes, a fluid that becomes progressively more dense, but no surface. So it's a journey through an increasingly thick uh, fog bank, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, or soup. Soup fog? Yes. <laughs> Pea soup fog. You keep saying that they could be hot, and I kind of wonder what makes them hot. I mean, if they're very close to their star, if they're orbiting, you know, if they're hugging their, their star in their orbit, I can understand, then they'll be hot. But what if they're a little farther out? Are they necessarily hot? Necessarily, perhaps, would be too strong a word. But in many cases, they will have an atmosphere, and an atmosphere produces a blanket. And when you have a blanket like that, you're warm. The greenhouse effect is an example of this. What happens on Venus is an example of this. The surface of Venus is very hot because it has a dense carbon dioxide atmosphere. These bodies, too, may have very dense, hot atmospheres, and so the heat from their interior has difficulty escaping, and that means the body stays hot for billions of years. And when you say hot, is this above the uh, boiling point of water? Yes, indeed, above the boiling point of water so that you have steam or you're mixing water with hydrogen. Even the rock can dissolve. It's nasty stuff. Wow. Now, the big question about super-Earths, at least for a lot of people, is, well, super-Earths, I mean, kind of steamy, but uh, could there be life under, under all that steam? I mean, maybe down in the liquid part where it's, I don't know, maybe not so warm? I mean, are these places that any aliens, even alien microbes, would want to call home? It might be a problem. Uh, it, it might not be a nice place to live. Even if you were living at a level in the atmosphere where the temperature was reasonable, there would be the danger that in an updraft or a downdraft, you were carried to a place that's much hotter, uh, and uh, that would be an, an unpleasant experience. It comes back to the fact that you might not have a well-defined surface on these bodies. So I'm not sure that this is a good place to live. I kind of think, actually, that the better place to live is a small place. Why, why go to a super-Earth? Why not go to a sub-Earth? Mars, for example. You've mentioned uh, Uranus and Neptune. These are the, I guess, closest things we have to super-Earths in our own solar system. And I think of Neptune and, and, and Uranus as planets that are just big gas balls. Is that really true? I mean, if, if we were to send a probe down into the atmosphere of one of these two planets in the outer solar system, would they just fall to the point where the pressure became so high and they just got sort of imploded? I mean, never land anywhere on an ocean or a continent? Well, actually, Uranus and Neptune might have oceans, but they're very deep down and they're very hot and very dense. And so it's not your usual everyday uh, idea of an ocean. It's certainly not a place that you would uh, find at all comfortable. Very high in pressure and hot. Um, so Uranus and Neptune are actually not gas balls. They're, they're mostly, we think, ice and rock with just a little bit of hydrogen on top. The hydrogen, of course, is very low in density, and so it makes the planet very puffy. Uh, and so Uranus and Neptune are 
considerably larger in radius than the Earth, but uh, they are mostly ice and rock, and that makes them a lot different from Jupiter and Saturn, and it makes them somewhat like the uh, idea of a super-Earth. Dave Stevenson, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. David Stevenson is a professor of planetary science at Caltech. Okay, uh, changing our tune here a bit. Asteroids should have their own star in Hollywood. They're the bedrock of science fiction. They appear consistently in movies as the bad guys, hurling toward Earth with the intent to seriously ruin your weekend plans. And when that happens, well, we send Bruce Willis into space with a couple of nuclear weapons. But NASA engineer Mark Raymond doesn't want to blow up asteroids. The one his team studies are not a threat to Earth. These asteroids hold clues to our planet's origins as well as to the rest of our four and a half billion year old solar system. They're remnants from the formation of the solar system. And so we believe these bodies contain a record of the conditions and the processes that were acting when planets formed. And it's from asteroids that planets form. Had conditions in the early solar system been different? There was more stuff for the asteroids to grow? Well, some of them could have graduated to planethood. As it is, they missed it by this much. You don't understand. I could have had mass. I could have been a contender. I could have been a real planet instead of a small celestial body, which is what I am. Mark Raymond's team is investigating the conditions at the dawn of the solar system. He is the chief engineer and mission director of NASA's Dawn mission. The Dawn spacecraft has completed its visit to the asteroid Vesta and is now on its way to Ceres, whose orbit it will reach in late March or early April 2015. And there are more questions, not just what the asteroids are made of, but why they are where they are. I mean, why is the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, for example? Why don't they hang out between Venus and Earth, huh? Huh? Well, if I were an asteroid, I think that would be a fun place to live. But it's believed that they're left over from when planets were forming, and Jupiter's tremendous gravity interrupted the process of planetary formation. And so the asteroids in the main asteroid belt are the material that would have become planets had Jupiter not cut off the planetary process. And, and Jupiter did that by its gravitational tug on these things, so it just sort of kept them from forming large groups. It's sort of like your local police. That's right. Jupiter mixed up the material, stirred it up, so when particles collided, instead of sticking together, they would collide with so much energy they would break apart. And it ejected a lot of the material, so the collisions became violent, so things didn't stick together, and there simply wasn't enough material left to form large bodies anymore. Now, your mission is called the Dawn Mission. That by itself is already sort of intriguing. Why is it the Dawn Mission? Well, dawn is supposed to indicate that we're going to learn about the dawn of the solar system. I think a lot of people are disappointed it's not an acronym. They like to write it that way. And so if you want an acronym, it could be discovering asteroids with NASA, but it really just refers to the early epoch of the solar system. I didn't realize that NASA would allow any mission not to be an acronym. Okay, and Dawn's mission, should it accept it, and has accepted it, and half accomplished it. What, what is its mission exactly? We're orbiting the two most massive residents of the main asteroid belt, Vesta and Ceres. And Ceres is so large, it's actually classified as a dwarf planet. In fact, it's the largest body between the Sun and Pluto that a spacecraft has not yet visited. And now, you've already been to Vesta, right? So you're on your way to Ceres. Vesta is somewhat smaller. If, if I plopped Vesta down in, you know, downtown Chicago, how big would it be? Well, you're right. We did orbit Vesta in 2011, 2012. It's 350 miles in diameter. So it's a little bit larger than Chicago. In fact, it's got twice the surface area of California. And Ceres, the larger body, has 38% of the surface area of the continental United States. These are big places. You made a lot of photographs uh, orbiting Vesta there. Tell us what you saw. Well, we took 31,000 pictures, and we saw truly a whole complex, fascinating alien world with towering mountains, one that reaches to more than two and a half times the height of Mount Everest, a crater 300 miles in diameter, a network of more than 90 chasms around the equator rivaling the Grand Canyon in size, other craters piercing the crust, complex topography. It's really a fascinating 
beautiful alien world unlike any that we've seen elsewhere in the solar system. You look at Vesta, these photos, and it looks like, well, this is not really a happening place now. I mean, obviously, it's been hit by a lot of rocks, a lot of craters, and so forth and so on. But it's had a, some dramatic events in its past, apparently. It did. It had a very violent past, and one of the impacts, estimated to have occurred about a billion years ago, excavated a tremendous volume of material some of which made its way into the part of the solar system where you and I and perhaps your listeners live as well, Earth, and now we have many meteorites that came from that impact. How do you know that they came from that impact? Are they, did they have little plates on the bottom, you know, made on Vesta? I mean, how do you know that a meteorite came from Vesta? It would have been convenient if they did come with that label, but in a sense they did, because astronomers use a technique called infrared spectroscopy, where they look at light that's beyond the wavelength we can see, but it carries the signature of the material that reflected it. And the signature of Vesta shows up very clearly in these meteorites. So you know that these things came from Vesta? We do. There are other lines of evidence as well. And when Dawn got to Vesta, it really provided the clinching evidence to confirm that these meteorites came from Vesta. But now we have many of these. In fact, more meteorites from Vesta than from Mars, the Moon, or any other solar system body that's been identified. Interesting. So if, if I have a random meteorite in my collection at home, uh, what are the chances, one in five, one in ten, that uh, one of them came from Vesta? Well, we estimate that about one in 16 of the meteorites seen to fall from Earth, that 6%, came from that impacted Vesta that excavated this huge 300-mile diameter crater. So now the spacecraft is on its way to Ceres. When, when is that going to happen? When, when are you going to get to Ceres? So we'll get into orbit in late March or early April of next year. And in February, we'll already be getting pictures better than those we have of, from the Hubble Space Telescope. This is somewhat remarkable that this spacecraft is going into orbit around two objects, not just one, as most spacecraft do. That's true. It's not only remarkable, it's unique. No other spacecraft has ever attempted to orbit two extraterrestrial destinations. And you can do that because? Because we have ion propulsion, which you and I and most other people first heard of in science fiction. But one of the rewards of working on a project like this is getting to turn that science fiction into science fact, and that's what allows us to undertake such an ambitious mission. Well, finally, Mark, you know, when uh, you're at a cocktail party whatever, and people ask you what you do and you tell them about the Dawn mission and you're going to see these asteroids and so forth, and they're thinking, oh, you want to learn how to, uh, you know, blow them up if necessary or whatever. What do you tell them? Why is this important? What do you hope to learn? You know, three years down the road, what is it that would be the first slide in your talk about these uh, other worlds? Well, what we hope to learn is more about how planets formed. But to me, the first thing is this is a mission of humankind, extending its reach into the cosmos. And that is what I think is really remarkable about missions like Dawn. Mark Raymond, thanks so much for uh, making a mission to Big Picture Science. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Seth. Mark Raymond is the Dawn Mission Chief Engineer and Mission Director, a mission that is playing things close to the Vesta, it sounds. And he has one more stop to complete his series. You know, that's more uh, asteroid puns than I've heard in a long time. But, <laughs> well, the solar system's clearly a different place than it was when I went to a planetarium as a kid a long time ago. I mean, it isn't actually a different place, but the thing is that we now know so many things that we never even thought about back then. We didn't have the equipment to explore the dim outer regions of it. So now we're learning a lot about asteroids, for one. Yeah. Well, we thought they were just, you know, small little uninteresting rocks. You look at an astronomy textbook of the time. An asteroid was just a little point of light. That's all we knew about these things. I mean, in some cases, we had some idea about their size. And they would say, oh, well, this one's as big as Texas, and that one's as small as New Hampshire or whatever. And that was it. That was what we knew. And now here is Mark Raymond, you know, waxing eloquent about how interesting the surfaces of these things are. All the little details in this corrugation over there and that giant crater over there. And well, well, they're a kind of time capsule that contain the history of the whole solar system. Yeah. They're not just beautiful and interesting, but, you know, they were around four and a half billion years ago when actually even I was not uh, to sort of record what was going on, how the solar system got born. And, you know, it's, it's good to know that. It's good that there is some witness to that. And asteroids were almost nearly planets. And speaking about planets... Um, there are planets outside our solar system that are quite abundant. They're called super-Earths. Some think that they could support life, but apparently Dave Stevenson is skeptical on that idea that super-Earths are super for life. Yeah. Well, it certainly would have helped to have had a super-Earth in our own solar system, so we would know whether they're suitable for life or not. 
course, we do have Jupiter. Uh, it's a lot bigger than a super-Earth. It's also 400 million miles away. But you know what? It may have once been a lot closer. And also, could Earth be actually a dwarf planet? That's all next on Big Picture Science. It's a sudden change in planets. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. So there are more interesting objects in our solar system than we realized. And here's something else that's a bit bizarre. We have small planets on the interior close to the sun, then bigger planets, and then smaller planets again. And in that way, our solar system is like a dinosaur. It's small at one end, then large, then small at the other end. That's a nod to Monty Python. Is a dinosaur here a patasaurus? A pat on the head to you for thinking of that. And yet when astronomers examine other solar systems, they often find that the big planets are sometimes on the inside closer to their sun, and the smaller planets are farther out. So why is that? Well, it may be that planets move around, that they don't stay in orbit near to where they were born. In a moment, more on the contentious debate between astronomers and planetary scientists and whether Earth could be a dwarf planet. But now, let's hear why planets just can't sit still. Rebecca Dawson is an astronomer and a postdoc fellow at the University of California at Berkeley. Becky, I think most people have the idea that there's hardly anything in nature more stable than a solar system full of planets. When I was a kid, I would go to the local planetarium, and they had this clockwork. Literally, it was clockwork on the ceiling, and the planets would go around this light bulb, which was supposed to be the sun. And the deal was they'd been doing that for 4 billion years, and they were going to do it for who knows how many more billion years. This was stable but it may not be so stable. That's right. We think that in many planetary systems, including maybe our own, the planets haven't been on clockwork-like orbits. They actually formed in different places than we observe them today, and their orbits have actually changed since when they formed. But how do they do that? I mean, they're whirling through empty space, right? They're obeying Newton's law. And uh, so what is it that could possibly change their orbiting natures? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's sort of two basic ways to change a planet's orbit. One is that the planet forms out of a disk of gas and dust, and that disk can exchange energy with the planet's orbit, and it can cause the planet's orbit to change. And that disk then goes away, and the planet is left on the orbit you see it with. Uh, The other alternative is that It's not just one planet going around the star. There's other planets in the system, too, and the gravitational interactions among the planets can change their orbits. So if we could rewind the clock, the clockwork, in our own solar system and go back to its youngest days, when it had just been born or was still being born, then we might find that the planets were not where they are today. You know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, you know, the things everybody learns in sixth grade. That's right. And particularly, it's thought that our solar system's giant planets have moved from where they formed. A lot of theories for our own solar system's history have our four giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, initially a lot closer together. And then either through interactions with the disk of small bodies or through interactions with each other, their orbits changed and the giant planets, a lot of them moved out so that they're now a lot further from the sun than where they formed. So we were a much more tightly knit group at that point? That's right. Well, the history of our solar system was undoubtedly dramatic. Close encounters, maybe interactions with this primordial disk that would have uh, changed the orbits of these young planets. What about the future? I mean, the solar system as we see it now Will they ever have to change the clockwork in the local planetarium? Or are the planets going to, you know, play do-si-do again? Are they going to change their positions? 
there's two ways that our own planets might change their positions. One is as our star evolves, it will get much larger and that will affect the orbits of the planets. Once our sun leaves its, what it's called, its main sequence lifetime, it'll start to expand and that will in turn affect the orbits of the planets and it could cause some of them to get swallowed, other ones to change their gravitational interactions with each other. The other thing related to that is that over very long time scales, our solar system is chaotic, which means that we can't predict where the planets will be. And there's always some probability that our own system will go unstable. But it's people's computer models have usually shown that that takes such a long time to happen that probably what I mentioned first about our star, our sun getting large, that's more likely to happen first than for our planets to go unstable. So they're likely, more likely, to stay in their present orbits until the sun starts running out of fuel and starts behaving badly by bulking up. That's right. When it bulks up, by the way, you said some planets will be swallowed. Do those include the Earth? Will the Earth be swallowed by the sun eventually? Um, There's a little bit of controversy on where the cutoff will be, but a lot of people think it will be. Well, I better sell my real estate sooner rather than later. Rebecca Dawson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Dawson is an astronomer and a postdoc fellow at the University of California at Berkeley. Okay, so we don't have to worry about Earth switching lanes anytime soon, but our having learned that planets can radically change their orbits is just another example of how the solar system is more diverse and more dynamic than we thought. And so it's no wonder that things are a little confusing, while it's also very exciting for those scientists who study it. This brings us back to the argument at the beginning of the show about how you classify a planet and who should be doing the classifying. The card-carrying astronomer? Excuse me. My card says that I am to be involved in a wide range of astronomical research, not only studying the stars in our galaxy, but the interstellar matter, dark energy, dark matter, and other galaxies. Plus, the card entitles me to a 10% discount on planispheres. Or should the decider be a card-carrying planetary scientist? I'm a bit of an Earth scientist, geologist, and I study mainly planets in our solar system, those worlds in our own backyard. Uh, I don't think this card gets me a discount on anything. (laughs) And while you'd think they have a lot in common... They don't tend to hang out together, astronomers and planetary scientists. They don't tend to have meetings together. They don't tend to talk a whole lot. And that is part of the problem that led to where we are which is that it was the International Astronomical Union that decided on the definition of a planet. And as a result, according to Alan Stern, the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission to Pluto, and from whom we heard earlier, plus other planetary scientists, the definition of planet is inadequate. And this has caused friction between scientists and other members of the public. Remember those Pluto t-shirts? Even the editor-in-chief of astronomy magazine, David Eicher, agrees that things are confusing. But, bottom line for him, does it matter if Pluto is a planet or a dwarf planet? No, and of course it really doesn't matter. In the the end, it's really an argument about semantics between astronomers and planetary scientists. But Pluto is comfortable being Pluto. We're going to get a great look at it a year from now in a flyby. And Pluto knows what it is and doesn't care. So it really doesn't make any difference whether it's a dwarf, a planet, or both. Well, why was the public upset then? I mean, what the heck? Did they think that Pluto had somehow been kicked out of an exclusive club and and they somehow felt sympathy for this icy rock ball? They did, and this sort of all came to a head, of course, with the discovery of many Kuiper Belt objects in in this region, uh, in the inner outer solar system, if you will, in the 1990s. And then in 2000, uh, Pluto got demoted very publicly by Neil Tyson at the American Museum of Natural History in New York in a display, and we started finding out a little bit about some of these larger bodies in the Kuiper Belt by around 2000 as well, and it became clear that there were lots of guys, more or less like Pluto, out there. But, you know, the trigger point was sort of discovering in the year 2000 that Eris, one of these large Kuiper Belt objects, was larger than Pluto, and and that sort of added uh, an element of urgency to the IAU. And the IAU came up with this uh, idea that they would create a committee, and they eventually created more than one committee. Um, And they were really headed by astronomers, not planetary scientists. And that led to the predicament that followed uh, in the critical year of 2006. 
Okay, but uh, why were astronomers charged with coming up with the, this clarification from the argument made by Alan Stern? It should have been planetary scientists. Yeah, and I think I would certainly agree with Alan on that one. And, and of course, the International Astronomical Union knows that astronomers know best. But astronomers aren't the entire... Uh, universe of folks studying the universe. They're, they're astronomers, they're planetary scientists, they're cosmologists, and so on. And it's not really clear why the astronomers um, held on to that. Uh, they certainly have the division of planetary science in the AAS. They could have drawn on and other folks to connect better with planetary scientists. They simply didn't. Now, the IAU then created this uh, definition of what a planet is, and presumably before 2006, no definition was necessary? Everybody knew what a planet was? That's right, and that's sort of what some of the liberal planetary scientists are saying we should return to, this definition of if, you know, if a school child sees a planet and they call it a planet, you know that it's a planet. There really wasn't anything more formal than that before 2006. And when the committee started, they got this very loosely and ill-defined set of three principles that made up the definition, and that's the core of the problem now. Well, give us what those uh, three components are. I mean, how do you qualify to become a planet? Two of them are very, very straightforward and easy. A planet orbits the sun. That's an easy one, and certainly Pluto makes that. It's massive enough to exist in hydrostatic equilibrium, and that's a fancy physics way of saying that it's spherical. It's round. Pluto also, uh, we believe, is certainly clearly okay with number two. Number three, uh, the IAU decided to say that it should have cleared its neighborhood of smaller bodies, and that's where the confusion comes in. Well, when you say clear its neighborhood of smaller bodies, sounds malevolent to me. But <laughs> what? I mean, I mean, how does it do that, and why does it need to do that? It is, and, and planets do that, and protoplanets do that, and galaxies do that on really big scales. They slam into each other, and they clear things out, and they accrete in the sense of planets and become bigger bodies and knock all the little stuff out of the way in their orbits just as galaxies uh, you know, on much larger scales merge and become bigger and bigger as time goes on. So it's clear that the problem is that there are little guys that are in the region of Pluto that still exist, and therefore Pluto is a dwarf planet, according to the IAU definition. And the, the other eight planets are still major planets uh, that have cleared out their orbits. That's according to the IAU definition. But isn't it so that the Earth has at least one other hunk of rock out there? I'm not talking about the moon now, but something very small that follows it around. And, you know, technically, maybe you would say that the Earth hasn't cleared out its space, and maybe the Earth is a dwarf planet. That's absolutely true. It's messy in more than one plane here, because not only was it a poor definition in 2006, but... Subsequent discoveries have made it even messier since. There is a Trojan asteroid uh, in sync with Earth that is moving around with us in a different part of our orbit, but linked to us, if you will, gravitationally, that was confirmed in 2011. It has the sexy name 2010-TK7. And then there are a lot of other small bodies, in fact, that are in orbital res resonance with Mars, with Neptune, with Uranus, and certainly with Jupiter that has a lot of little guys following and leading it around. Well, having said that, it sounds like we're all dwarf planets. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is not only is the current situation muddy because of the little fellas that are associated with those planets, but so much of the argument depends on where the planet is. I mean, I'm, we're talking about those bodies are associated with the planets where they are now. Now, if you moved Earth, say, out to the Kuiper Belt, it would have lots and lots of stuff that it hadn't cleared out. If you moved Jupiter way out to the Oort cloud, it wouldn't clear anything close to its orbit. So the location of where a planet is really matters so critically. That seems to be a weakness in the definition as well. Wow. Well, there just don't seem to be any uh, 
any really good reasons to have done this to Pluto, at least in hindsight, uh, although perhaps there's a movement to reclassify the Earth as dwarf planet Earth. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> is, is there one? I mean, we you know show solidarity with the outer solar system. <laughs> Earth can say Earth is the best planet we know. We can we can take it if Pluto can. <laughs> I guess so. Well, finally, Dave, as New Horizons nears Pluto, uh, and we learn more about planet formation in general, and perhaps about the many hundreds of planets in our solar system that Alan Stern has referred to, do you think there are going to be more redefinitions uh, on the horizon, or not the New Horizon, but on the horizon? Or at least, how might we think about planets differently? How is this going to change things? Well, I think it will simplify the way we think about planets because this is the first close-up look that we'll be getting in July of next year of the last frontier, whether it's a dwarf planet or a planet or both, in the solar system and having a really close-up view of one of these objects like Pluto and like the others out there will really, I think, show Pluto as a planetary system, because as we know, it has a very large moon, Charon, and several other tiny moons, and it really is a little planetary system. So I think it will push and redefine again the flawed definition that we have in, in uh, position now. Well, I've got to say, the word planet, it's at least 2,000 years old, and maybe it's, you know, it's had a good run. Maybe it's time, <laughs> time for a little bit of a sharpening of what that word means. Things keep moving on with progress here. Dave Eicher, thanks so very much for being with us. Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure. David Eicher is the editor-in-chief of Astronomy Magazine. Thanks to a stable and reliable production team whose names are not in dispute, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, the additional talents of Gabriel Alvarado and Debbie Collier. And financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Whose ears have been attuned to a sudden change in planets. And if you suddenly crave more Big Picture Science, you may want to orbit our archive. You'll find it on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer to substitute it for over-the-air radio because you can't plan it, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Such as more asteroid puns? Yeah, well, you can write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Now that there's 900 planets, I'm going to have to track down Ms. Wallahopper and give her my new mnemonic. My very eager mother can valiantly just sit up naming planets while quietly hand-making Fabergé eggs, which, while not edible, might break open to reveal dragons. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.